An infantry soldier came under heavy fire. Bullets zipping overhead. He dove into a foxhole. Well, under normal circumstances, this G.I. rarely thought about his faith. Yet staring death in the face, he pulled the cross out that he usually wore around his neck. And he was desperate for any help or power he could get. Well, suddenly, another G.I. dove into the same foxhole. Well, when he rolled over, the previous soldier noticed that it was an army chaplain. What a relief. He held up his cross and he said to the chaplain, Wow, am I glad to see you. Can you tell me how to get this thing to work? (laughs) And that's a good question for us. For how does the cross work? How does the victory won 2,000 years ago translate into victory in our lives today? That's the question that gets answered here in Romans chapter 6. Well, the chapter begins, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Chapter 5 ended, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. But such a comment can be misinterpreted. Since the more we sin, the more grace God supplies, you could assume that it's our duty to sin. Well, let's whip up some sin so that God can show off his grace. Actually, in the early 1900s, a Russian monk named Gregory Rasputin actually taught this heresy. He was called the mad monk. He once said, if you're simply an ordinary sinner, you're not giving God an opportunity to show his glory. So you need to be an extraordinary sinner. And Rasputin practiced what he preached. He was a drunkard. He was a womanizer. He was a disgrace to God's grace. See, his flawed logic is like a teenager who says he needs to keep a messy room so his friends will see how great a housekeeper his mom is. No mom I know would put up with such nonsense. They would certainly say, certainly not. Never use grace as an excuse for sin. Paul writes, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Grace doesn't promote sin. It creates freedom from sin. And it does so in an interesting way. Here's a radical thought. In Christ, we died to sin. See, a corpse is no longer aware or pulled by outside forces. Sin no longer has an influence on a dead man. Here in Romans Romans chapter 6, Paul explains how God works for us and in us. You know, the cross of Jesus cleanses our record, but it also changes our nature. It works judicially to gain our pardon, but effectually to transform our character. The hymn, Rock of Ages, expresses this well. Be of sin the double cure, safe from wrath, and make me pure. The gospel does both. Jesus delivers us not only from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. In essence, the cross paid for more than a paint job. It installs in us a new engine. And in chapter 6 here, Paul is going to pop the hood on our salvation in order to reveal the work that God has done inside all those who embrace the cross and believe in Jesus. And so he says in verse 3, 
Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Paul uses two terms here to describe what happens when we come to Jesus. A theological term, baptism, and a biological phrase, united together or grafted in. The word baptize has multiple meanings in the Bible. Usually when we think of it, we think of water baptism. But here it means to induct or to install. When a rookie quarterback goes into his first NFL game and he gets sandwiched between two 300-pound behemoths, we usually say, well, he got his baptism. He's now officially part of the game, part of the action. And this is what happened when you put your faith in Jesus. You were baptized into Christ. You became part of all that Jesus has acquired and has accomplished. Well, the biological term that Paul uses here in verse 5 is united together. And it means to grow together or graft in. Ever see two trees grow together? They touch at a certain point, and at that point, they begin to grow as one. Well, those who are saved are connected to Christ, and we are growing in Him. But this is where the plot thickens. For where we touch Christ is at the cross. When He died, in a spiritual sense, you died with Him. And when He was buried, your old life was buried with Him. And when Jesus rose, you rose in him with new life. This is what we illustrate when we do a water baptism. You enter the pool a sinner. You're buried under the waters of death. Then you rise again alive in Christ Jesus. Spiritually, when you connect to Christ, you share in all that Jesus accomplished on the cross. When he died, a part of you died. And when he rose, a part of you rose. Blaise Pascal once put it, one of the greatest principles of Christianity is that what happened in Jesus happens in the soul of the Christian. It's strange to think that we share in an event that occurred 2,000 years before we were born and perhaps where we've never been. Yet it's true As surely as the nails were driven into the hands and feet of Jesus, we died with him. And as surely as he walked out of the tomb, we share in his new life. Bible commentator Frank Gablian expresses it. Our spiritual history began at the cross. You remember when Elisha raised the woman's son from the dead? 2 Kings chapter 4 describes the miracle. We're told, and when he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands, and he stretched himself out on the child. Now, how creepy is that? Elisha interfaces with the child, and virtue is transferred. 
Life flows through their connection. And likewise, when Jesus was nailed to the cross in a mystical, spiritual way, our old sin nature was nailed there with him. In our heart of hearts, we died to sin. What Jesus did for all, he did in you. Now, I know this sounds weird, but here's a way to sort of stretch your thinking. In the making of a movie, scenes are shot first with the actors. There are no special effects, there's no music, just the actors. Later in the process, the extras get dubbed in on top of the original actors-only clip. Well, in God's mind and in his heart, when you came to Jesus, your spirit, that is the deepest part of who you are, got transposed on top of the crucified Christ. Think of it, God dubs in your old man over his only son. At that moment of connection, the life you lived at odds with God dies with Jesus. Now when the footage rolls, you're there, but now you're in Christ, crucified with him, a brand new person inside. This is what Paul says in verse 6, knowing this that our old man was crucified with him. Once there was a little boy who came home from Sunday school, and he said he had learned that Paul's father was one of the thieves on the cross. His mom wondered where in the world he'd gotten such a wild idea. Well, he quoted Paul here in Romans 6, verse 6, my old man was crucified with Christ. (laughs) That's not what Paul means. But it's actually pretty close. Because Paul's father had a father, who had a father, who had a father, who had a father, all the way back to Adam. Remember Adam's sin, Adam bombed. It was the original Adam bomb. And the fallout of that original sin is felt in every human heart since. Every one of us is born with a sin nature. This is what Paul calls the old man. It's the rebel you. It's the BCU, the before Christ version of you. It's you governed by selfishness and pride. It's the you that ran from God. But when you come to Jesus, this natural inclination to reject God and pursue sin gets crucified. This will help. In the book of Romans, Paul sees human beings as divided into two partitions. You see, each of us is made up of an inward man and an outward man or woman. The real you is the inner you. It's the spiritual part of you. It's the part of you that will leave your body one day and continue to live for all eternity. Whereas the outer man is the flesh. This is the part of you that returns to the dust. Now, you see, the day you came to Jesus, outwardly, you looked the same as you did the day before. Oh, maybe you had a smile on your face or perhaps a bounce to your step. But physically, nothing had changed. Yet inwardly, in your spirit, you became a new creation. A radical change occurred in the depths of your being. In Christ, you died to sin. You were crucified with Christ. The old man was crucified. 
Your sin nature was replaced with a new nature. Your inborn tendency to sin was replaced with a love for God and a love for others. And notice the past tense here. He says, our old man was crucified with him. You know, for years, I heard Bible teachers tell me that I needed to crucify the old man. And so I tried. I tried to say no to sin. I tried to discipline my body and rid myself of my lusts. And yet nothing I did physically was able to change what I was on the inside. Understand this. Nobody crucifies themselves. Crucifixion is never a suicide. Someone else drives in the nails. Dying to sin isn't something that's up to me. It occurs in Christ when I get saved. Take a pig off the farm. Clean up that little pig. Dress him up in some pants and a shirt and a little boy's shoes. Take him home and start treating that pig like a child. But guess what? A pig is still a pig is still a pig. You can't alter what that pig truly is without changing its nature. And this is our problem. We can't change what we are. We're sinners at heart. We can dress up in religious garb and speak religious jargon and develop religious habits. We can clean up on the outside, but inside we're sinners waiting on the next opportunity to act sinfully. Only God can change me on the inside. And his solution is the cross. See, God's answer to my sin nature isn't me turning over a new leaf. It's not some hypnosis or behavior modification or psychiatric treatment, etc., etc. No, the only way to get victory over my old man is to crucify him. It's not a 12-step approach. It's a one-step approach. We must fully believe that our old man died with God's only son. Realize when you come to Jesus, he doesn't just add to your life. He does, but he doesn't just add his nature and his spirit and his fruits. No, the sin nature you were born with also gets subtracted. Remember 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Old things have done what? They've passed away. I used to think that the old nature was left to slug it out with the new nature. I was erroneously taught that nothing really died at my salvation, that my sin nature continued side by side with God's new nature. The result was some kind of split personality, two natures in conflict with each other, And it was up to me to deny the old and submit to the new. You probably heard this illustration. Two dogs, they live in my heart. A good dog and a bad dog. And the dog I feed the most is the one that grows the strongest and takes control. The problem, though, is that's not biblical. You're not a doghouse with two dogs. No, your old dog is dead. And he's buried. You need to know, you need to really believe that a new dog now lives in you. Reminds me of the two old country boys. They were planning, they were playing with a little turtle as it crossed the road. One fellow, he pulled out his knife. 
and he cut off its head. Well, its body kept walking across the blacktop, and it caused an argument. Elmer said, that turtle's dead. It doesn't have a head. Otis replied, no way. How can a turtle be dead when it's still walking? Well, just then up walks Bubba. And they ask him, they say, Bubba, is that turtle dead or not? And I love Bubba's reply. He says, well, boys, it seems to me that their turtle is dead. He just don't know it yet. And if we're still struggling with sin, this is our problem. This is why Paul begins verse 6, knowing this. Here's the key. You need to know that you know that in Christ you are not the same person, that a miracle has happened in you, that you are brand new inside. There's a cartoon of a home Bible study. A group of folks, they're sitting around. The topic is Romans chapter 6. One of the ladies confesses, I haven't actually died to sin, but I did feel kind of faint once. At least she's just being honest. You know, you might be thinking something similar this morning. Boy, I wrestled with sin. I've struggled with sin, but died to sin? Are you sure, man? I'm not sure I felt that. In fact, even now, you feel very alive to tempting and sinful desires. So here's the big question. If I died to sin, then why do I still sin, and why do I continue to feel its pull? Well, look closely at verses 6 and 7. He says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, notice in these verses, Paul mentions two pockets of sin in our lives, two sources of sin. There was our old man, and there is the body of sin. Now, the old man was the old sin nature. It was dealt with on the cross. But the body of sin is dealt with as a consequence Remember also, the Christian is two parts. There's the inner man and there's the outer man. Inwardly, in my spirit, I'm a new creation. But in this body that is my flesh, the part of me that is going to go back to the dust one day, I'm the same God that I've always been. This means my body still knows how to sin. And that's why Paul here calls it the body of sin. Even though I've been changed on the inside... Outwardly, I still know how to sin. Understand where I'm going with this? See, before I became a Christian, before I came to Jesus, I spent 20 plus years programming my mind and my hands and my tongue and my feet and my emotions to do what? To be sinful, to be selfish. And to make matters worse, I still live in a world that eggs on the body of sin. The language and desires and images around me, 24-7, all point me to sin. The world we live in reminds us of the old man and who we were apart from Christ. And even though I know I'm new in Christ, I know that I've been changed on the inside. Old habits still die hard, don't they? Right. 
Have you ever crawled out of bed at 6 a.m. on Saturday morning thinking it's Friday and start to get ready for work? Yeah, it's happened. Our autopilot can betray us, can it? Old habits. I used to drive a car with a stick shift. Kathy drove an automatic. And so whenever I got into my wife's car, I'd always reach for the phantom shifter. See, some actions take time to stop even after the reason for them no longer exists. And this is what happens to a born-again Christian. Deep inside, I'm a new person. But outwardly, my feelings and thoughts and emotions have been conditioned to act and react in sinful ways. And so under pressure, it's easier for me to revert back to an old habit, just sort of fall into the rut, than it is to cultivate new habits and new patterns that are in keeping with who I am in Christ. The key is to know that I know. This is why Paul says in verse 6, knowing this. It's when I really get my mind around this truth of who I am in Christ, then the body of sin is done away with or its effect gets negated. When I know who I am spiritually in Christ, that truth then allows me to turn a deaf ear to my fleshly sinful desires. If I see myself in Christ, I'll lean on the resources that he makes available to me. But if that's not my identity, if I see myself as the same person that I once was, then I'll listen to the lies of the world, and I'll lean on my own resources, and I'll end up defeated. Real faith builds a new identity based on the cross and what God says about me in his word. Paul continues here in verse 8. He says, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. You know, in the Old West days, at least in the movies about the Old West days, the bad guys were wanted, dead or alive. But as a Christian, we're born again. We are dead and alive. In Christ, we're dead to sin, and we're alive to God. We don't just share in the crucifixion of Jesus, but we also share in his resurrection power and in his new life. He says, so likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And here's proof that Paul was a southerner. For he uses a good down home southern term, reckon. But you know, he doesn't use it southern style. Notice this. You know, if you ask me, is it going to rain today? And I reply, well, I reckon so. Here's what I'd actually be saying it probably will, it might. I hope so. But if I just said, well, I reckon it'll rain. That doesn't mean I'm going to take my umbrella with me that day. But that's not what Paul means when he uses this word reckon. The Greek word translated reckon means to consider it so, to treat it as if it's really true. 
When Paul tells us to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God, he's saying that we need to consider this a done deal. We need to learn to see ourselves and live our lives in light of that truth. God's goal is to get us to change the way we view ourselves, to alter our identity. Rather than see yourself as a struggling sinner trying to be a saint, you need to see yourself as a victorious saint living in the victory of Jesus. Don't just know this truth. Take it a step further and let your identity in Christ shape in you a new mindset. And this isn't just mental gymnastics or the power of positive thinking. Considering it so doesn't make it so. We consider it so because it is so. Once a sports writer, he asked baseball's greatest shortstop, Hannes Wagner, if baseball was a tough job. Wagner's reply was classic. He said, ain't much to being a ball player if you are a ball player. And you know, the same is true with being a Christian. The real you died to sin and lives to God. It's now time for you to live what you truly are. It's not hard to love rather than lust if it's love that dwells in your heart. I love what John Wayne once said. When I take a role, I play John Wayne, regardless of the character I happen to be portraying. Dress John Wayne up in a, as a cowboy or as a soldier or as a firefighter or as a detective. And John Wayne always played John Wayne. He knew who he was. And he refused to be anyone else. And this is how you live as a Christian. You know the truth and then you reckon it so. And you develop a strong identity around it. Notice verse 12. He adds one more piece to the puzzle. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts, and do not present your members as instruments or tools of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Three words stand out here in Romans 6. No and reckon, and now present. Know that you're dead to sin and alive to God, then reckon it so, and form a new identity in Christ. And lastly, present your members as instruments of righteousness. In short, get behind your new identity with your mind, and your words, and your actions, and your memory, and your eyes, and your hands, and your feet. That is, with all of your members. Use your members as tools to promote your new life in Christ. Start speaking and doing and going in ways that fortify your faith. Understand how this works. Identity determines behavior. See, how we see ourselves determines how we live our lives. But then subsequent actions reinforce our identity. If I see myself as a baseball player, but if I never play baseball, I won't be a very good ball player, will I? And you can see yourself as a Christian, but if you never read your Bible or fellowship or worship or witness, it's going to be very hard to hang on to that identity when the pressure gets applied. The idea is to get into a new groove 
We need to put off the old and put on the new. Paul writes, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Again, a skeptic might say that God has freed you from the law for you to live lawlessly. But just the opposite is true. Under the law, it was up to us to obey. But under grace, God does the work in us. God ends our obligation to the law, not because it's okay for us to break it, but because through grace, we're more inclined to keep it. And then he says in verse 16, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? In other words, everybody serves somebody. And as a Christian, you get to choose. That's the miracle. Think evil thoughts, chase evil things, let your members pursue a sinful lifestyle, and you'll be a slave to sin. Sin will eat your lunch. Whereas if you direct your members Godward, if you read godly and watch godly and do godly and think godly, you'll be the happy servant of a generous and gracious king. Verse 17 tells us, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. See, we're all slaves either to God or to sin. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness... So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, he's saying to the degree you you pursued sin in the past, now pursue God in the present and in your future. And Paul here is the ultimate example. You remember before his salvation, he murdered Christians. And he persecuted the church. Yet after he was saved, he was as zealous for Jesus as he had been against him before. Some of us need to take the energy we spent raising hell and use it to populate heaven. If you partied hardy then, I hope you're worshiping hardy today. He says in verse 21, What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Looking back, it's sad that we put so much energy into a lifestyle that caused nothing but shame and hurt. We were driving down a dead-end street, but now that we've turned in the right direction, don't break, don't slow down now. Keep the pedal to the metal, man, and live all out for Jesus. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Here's a life worth living, friends, Holiness now and everlasting life in the end. And so he says in verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now Romans 6 teaches us that we're free from sin. But now in Romans chapter 7 we learn that we're also free from the law. See, when you come to Jesus, you die to sin, and you die to the law. And both realizations are vital to victory. You see, Jewish children were reared on the law of Moses. 
They studied it and they read it and they memorized it. And then when a boy turned 12, he was bar mitzvahed. Literally, he became a son of the law. He was no longer accountable to his earthly father. Now he was accountable to God's law. Of course, the law didn't just consist of two tablets or the Ten Commandments. It was made up of 613 commandments. And the Jews measured their status before God by how they stacked up to all these rules. Yet living by the law was like riding a roller coaster. Up one minute, down the next. See, legalism creates a vicious cycle. You're puffed up when you're doing well, and then you get shot down when you're doing bad. You're puffed up and shot down and puffed up and shot down. It creates a chronic syndrome. I mean, a syndrome. And in chapter 7, Paul writes to Romans living under the law to get them off this roller coaster. Moses laid down the law in a way that bound us to it, but in Christ, we can lay down the law in a way that frees us from it. And he says in verse 1, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. Now, Paul compares living under the law to a marriage. You'd think that since the law didn't make us righteous, we could just walk away from it. But not so easy. For like a marriage, you can't just bail. We're bound to the law until death do us part. He says, but if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, while her husband lives, she marries another She will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. See, before we came to Christ, we were hitched to the law. And the law was the perfect mate. Ladies, imagine being married to the perfect husband. Stretch your minds now. He wakes up in the morning, not a hair out of place. He smiles, he prays, goes get your coffee, brings it to you in bed. That's all before he drops down and does 100 push-ups and 200 set-ups. Then he serves you a hot, delicious breakfast. Now, granted, this would be nice for a while. You would enjoy Mr. Perfect for a while until Mr. Perfect started pointing out ways that you're not. You know, you could lose a few pounds, honey. Oh, wait a minute. Why is he running that white glove over the countertops over there? Wait a minute. Now Mr. Perfect has become Mr. Pest. In fact, life with Mr. Perfect could get so bad that you might want to go to court and file for divorce. But the judge is going to ask you on what grounds. Forget it. Your husband's perfect. You got no grounds. So you can't divorce him, you try to kill him. You spike his juice with a few spoonfuls of arsenic. Yet Mr. Perfect is so healthy, all he gets is a stomachache. Finally, you conclude the only way to really get free from Mr. Perfect is to kill yourself. And living under the roof with legalism is the same as being married to Mr. Perfect. It's frustrating and it's condemning 
and there's no escape. See, the law is perfect and forever. That's why your only way out is to die. And yet God is taking care of that for you. For we have died with Christ. Verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. In Christ, we're not only dead to sin, but we're dead to the law. The law has no jurisdiction over a dead man. What if I went in and robbed a bank, and in the act, I had a heart attack, and I died? Would the cops put the handcuffs on a corpse? Would they book the corpse? Of course not. The law doesn't care about corpses. A dead man is free from the law as we are in Christ. And when you die to the law, you can marry another, he says, namely Jesus Christ. You go from perfect Mr. Law to gracious Mr. Love. And what a difference that makes. Mr. Love doesn't expect perfection. He doesn't check the house with a white glove. He doesn't put you on the scales and complains about your weight. He helps you keep clean and fit, ready. He's patient, even when we put on a few pounds. There's no pressure to perform with gracious Mr. Love. With the law, you've got to obey, but with love, oh, you get to obey. And then he says in verse 5, For when we were in the flesh... The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. You know, there's an old saying, there are two ways to get something done. Do it yourself or you tell your kids not to. Trust me, if we posted a sign up in the church, up in the front of the building, up in the lawn, do not throw beer cans on the church lawn. Do you realize that the next day our church would look like a frat house after a Georgia game? Do you realize that? Why? Because rules are made to be broken. All rules do is provide the sinner a target. That's all they do. This is why rather than motivate us to godliness, the law arouses our sinful passions. What if I commanded you? I commanded you now to close your eyes. And whatever you do for the next 30 seconds, don't think of a pink elephant with a blue guitar. Whatever you do, don't think about a pink elephant with a blue guitar. See, even though that hasn't crossed your mind all day, suddenly, now that you're fighting it, that's all you can think about is a pink elephant with a blue guitar. Why? Because the rule arouses the very temptation it commands us to resist. In verse 5, Paul tells us the term flesh. Your flesh is you apart from Christ. It's you and your efforts. And even when the flesh tries to please God, it fails. This is why living under the law is counterproductive to godliness. It relies on the flesh rather than on grace. See, we overcome sin through God's Spirit, not through our flesh. Paul says, but now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The law held up the standard, but it provided us no ability to live at that higher level. 
Whereas God's Spirit gives us power outside of ourselves, the Holy Spirit enables us to overcome our sin. Now, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. There's nothing wrong with Mr. Law. Remember, he's perfect. And he's helped us in a vital way. Verse 7. For on the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. See, the law is that mirror that allows me to see my own blemishes. I would never have known how far I'd fallen if I had not had the law. Verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. The law revealed sin, but in doing so, it aroused sin. Its condemnation of sin became my suggestion to sin. Reminds me of the waterfront hotel in Houston, Texas. I heard about management had problems with people fishing on the top floors. Some of the high-rise fishermen weren't using long enough line. And so when they cast their metal lures, the bait hit and cracked the glass windows on the first floor restaurant. The hotel hired an engineer to sort of solve the problem. Well, after a quick survey of the situation, the engineer came back with a suggestion. He said, remove the no fishing from the balcony signs. And as soon as they did, all the fishing stopped. The law had stirred up the action that it was intended to prevent. Verse 9, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Paul recalls his early days as a Christian. He began enjoying living for Jesus until the demands of the law slipped back in. See, if you want to take the fun out of reading your Bible, adopt a rigid Bible reading plan. To lose the joy of giving, just make it mandatory. Want to turn coming to church into a drag? Make it an obligation rather than an opportunity. Put yourself back under the law. And it steals the joy. Paul says in verse 11, legalism is lethal. It's a joy killer. You know, for fun, my kids, they used to take my rakes out into the woods behind the house. And they used to clear out paths and build forks forts. And they use those rakes for hours, raking pine straw, building their little forts, building their paths and all. But ask those same kids to take those rakes and rake up the leaves in my backyard. It was like pulling teeth. It was drudgery. Likewise, when the law demands us to serve, serving loses its joy. Verse 12, therefore the law is holy in the commandment, holy and just and good. In other words, the law isn't the problem. We're the problem. To save us, God in his wisdom developed a righteousness apart from the law. Verse 13. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. See, under the law, my sin becomes the issue in my life. 
The law exposes my sin. It casts a spotlight on my sin. It heightens my awareness of my sinfulness when I'm under the law. But under grace, the Son of God becomes the issue in my life. Because it's all about Jesus, not me. It's not about my failures. It's about his victory. It's about his sacrifice. It's about his resurrection. I progress as a Christian, not by fighting with my sin, but by following God's son. Let me close with an interesting story. In January 1972, two hunters on the island of Guam found a World War II Japanese soldier named Shoichi Yokoi. Yokoi was hiding in a jungle cave. Afraid of capture, he would only come out at night. This was 1972. You see, in 1947, Shoichi had read a flyer dropped from a U.S. plane declaring America the victor, but he didn't believe the news. And so for 25 years, he proceeded to fight a war that he didn't know was over. And sadly, this is the plight of many Christians. The war inside us, friends, is over. Victory has been decided by Jesus on the cross. God's grace has worked a miracle in us. And we now share in all that Jesus has acquired and accomplished. Thus, the Christian's inner man is dead to sin and alive to God. Yet, like the soldier, if we don't believe the news, its impact will have a minimal effect. If you live in a cave of doubt, you need to come out and trust in Jesus. It's faith that wins the battle.